0: We're going to dance with somebody in an Empire of Light and as we learn about Till Peter von Kant's going to wear his corsage I'm Van Conner and I'm Adam Ball and this is off
1: screen your 7 day guide to everything movies boom A big hello and welcome to the show. Then, well, we have got a week of brand new movies ahead of us. Um, so, Van, let's start with the with a Sam Mendes special, Empire of Light.
0: Yeah, this is uh, this is one I just, I didn't know anything about other than it involved Sam Mendes and 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 his love of cinema. And when I say his love of cinema, I mean. He he literally has a cinema as his central location of this movie, and a lot of grand romances heaped upon it. So he's really going all in on that description. Um, Sam Mendes, weirdly as well, since nineteen seventeen, a couple of years ago, seems to have uh, just become instilled suddenly in the public consciousness as this sort of British director to watch. And I mean, like my, my my sort of very average, not really particularly film knowing friends seem to be Sam Mendes fans all of a sudden, uh, mm. which is which is just something I noticed this week. It's very interesting to me. So so this is a drama set in the early 1980s I think it's literally the Christmas season of 1980 going into 1981 uh, and it stars Olivia Coleman as Hillary and she's sort of the, the deputy manager of the Empire Cinema in I think Margate and remember about, the, yeah, remember about the period sort of time scale I'm telling you about this. This is obviously the time of certain movements in British culture, certain moods, and certain uh, 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 certain discriminatory elements rising within society. We then get uh, Michael Ward's character, Stephen, join the cinema as a new employee. He's sort of waiting, his, he's a younger guy waiting for his time sort of to go to uni until so he can get accepted. And he is black, which of course makes him stand out in this in almost entirely white seaside town but as the elements of effectively the national front starts to rise up this also co- you know that brings problems along for him and it also coincides with a trauma from the past and the mental health concerns of hillary in the process all of which coincides would you believe with the premiere of chariots of fire have a listen ah. why not because it's pointless they turned me down the first
1: time to study what Architecture.
0: Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Do you have to try again? Yeah, maybe. You can't just give up. Stephen. Don't let them tell you what you can or can't do. No one's going to give you the life you want. You have to go out and get it. You can't stay here. Alright.
1: Firstly, I absolutely love Olivia Colman. She's, she's got kind Name. of a she's got a sincerity about everything that she does, and and I mean you could hear that just then in that in that uh, in that trailer. And I've seen a bit of the trailer. I've got to say, mm. I think the cinematography in this is beautiful.
0: Of course it is. It's Roger Deakins doing cinematography. You can't have Sam Mendes anymore without Roger Deakins, and Roger Deakins is just forever anointed now as one of the great cinematographers of our age. Like he's he's someone like most members of the public who know nothing about like filmmaking. Some of them may actually be able to name Roger Deakins by now because he's just become that prolifically known, particularly in recent years for things like Skyfall and uh, 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 Blade Runner 2049, for instance, as well. He's, he's one of the greats, and it really shows here, because what you've got is this grand old 1980s cinema in all of its period piece splendor, captured just gorgeously by Roger Deakins. And this is the thing, it's, it's wonderfully directed. It's, it's, it looks incredible. The performances are amazing. I mean, like you say, Olivia Colman. How can you have any, how can you not just love Olivia Colman? I'm going to refer to yeah. the Olivia Colman movie, I think, in the next block anyway. Um, I love Olivia Colman, and she's, she's great in everything she's in. She's terrific here. Genuinely terrific. What do you expect of her? A uh, Supporting cast includes uh, Tom Brooke, uh, Toby Jones. Always great to see Toby Jones turn up. And, of course, Colin Firth. Who really sort of plays against type is really sort of pushing back hard against his sort of natural likability here and playing something of a a character that you really just intensely dislike. He's just one, one you know you've met this guy kind of thing, a very unlikable turn uh, from Colin Firth and an absolute cracker. I think he's great in it as well. The problem I have with Empire of Light is it's, it's it, although it's compelling and you're never particularly bored. It seems to it seems to be so unfocused, in then it brings up plot elements that seem to be its central thesis, and then just discards them just as quickly, and forgets about them then for the longest time. So, uh, for instance, the elements of uh, racial tension, as regards uh, Stephen being you know a black man in Margate, you know in the early eighties, um, that that. It feels like it goes away for an hour of this. And, and to be fair, this is not a short film. It's an hour 55. It feels longer. It feels like about two and a quarter. Like it is a grand award season type film. But it just feels unfocused. It seems to just forget what it's about and then just spend half an hour of just people hanging out. And although it's, although, you know, wonderful performances, you know, and, it, and they, they play it wonderfully, it's nice to watch them hang out, you sort of forget what the point of it's meant to be.
1: So, I mean in the background I mean I, I get totally what you're saying on that I mean mm. I'll have to watch it to, to disagree or agree on that I'm feeling for me whether I'm interested or not with the plot is there a lot of 80s memorabilia in there that we're <laughs> going to enjoy and love as well
0: do you know, there's loads of little period piece details in the background that you notice uh, that I really loved, like the 11P uh, Opal Fruits uh, bag. 11P, 11P, <laughs> and, and Opal Fruits. Remember when they were called Opal Fruits? Of course, they were yeah. Starburst. Yeah, yes, I kept right. looking around to see if they had any Marathon bars. You know, the pre-Snickers <laughs> Snickers. Um, but yeah, there's there's loads of little details. On that. Of course, the, the the love of film does see its uh, way with, in, into the form of the movies that they show in the cinema, and there's a, a very moving sequence like I say a lot of it is telegraphed in advance you know there's going to be a point in which you know Olivia Colby gets to experience uh, you know a wonderful moment of cinema and in her case it's the Peter Sellers movie being there and we see loads of great movies that were released in 1881 uh, you know make their debuts in you know, stir crazy uh, for instance comes up and, and, and of course Chariots of Fire is the regional premiere around which a lot of the plot uh, revolves so there's loads of period piece detail it's mostly in the attitudes of the costumes more than anything else but you you know, this is not one where you're going to get a particularly like amazing retro soundtrack. There's a couple of little minor needle drops here and there, though, I will say.
1: So, uh, I mean, it's, you say it's an award season movie, right? So mm. is there some great big climax at the
0: end? I mean, it, now, there's a, a focal point of this is the New Year's Eve. So there's li- there are literal fireworks in this. But yes, it does go to grand emotional places. The problem is, like I say, a lot of it is telegraphed in advanced. So although you are never bored, you are never particularly surprised either. Which is, you know, it's it's up to that's kind of I would call that kind of middle of the road thinking. The, I, it is awards worthy, I think, and it will come up for awards contention, particularly as regards to the BAFTAs. I think uh, for the performances, I would not be shocked to see. I mean, I mean if Roger Deakins is involved. There's always a nomination there for cinematography because Roger Deakins is awake at the time, which means it's sort of mandatory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm never going to accuse the Academy of being, uh, you know, predictable or anything. But yeah, it's like it's like you know they would have heaped the acting nods. (laughs) Will Smith for Emancipation had he not just pimp slapped Chris Rock Um. but uh, yeah
1: So would you say this is one that's worth going to the cinema to see when it's out on January the 9th or is it one that you would say is worth just hanging on a bit and watching it at home
0: I think this is one that I think is mostly going to appeal to what Bex used to refer to as the Grey Pound. I think older older people are going to enjoy this a lot more, I think, because there is something of a quaint of the time feel to it. But I think there is enough of the grizzle drama as well, the National Front stuff, things like that, to appeal more to the younger crowd, to appeal to people you know younger than ourselves, for instance, who want to go on date night and have a thoughtful drama with it. I think that would work as well. But I don't think, to be honest, this is much of a popcorn crowd pleaser. Having said that, Sam Mendes's name does seem like it can draw some people in.
1: Yeah, I think that's likely. Well, that's out on January the 9th, Empire of Light. So still to come then, we've got a French romantic drama film to talk about in the uh, name of Peter von Kant and also a historical drama called Corsage. So we'll be chatting uh, all about that and Van will review those in just a few minutes. We'll be back right then. Stay there. Hello, and we are back then sticking with brand new movies out this week. Let's start with Peter von Kant, which is a French romantic drama. Talk to me. (laughs)
0: I think calling it romantic, I don't know who's I mean, I know it's probably written down like INDB as romantic drama, but it's so strange because to watch it, there's like no romance to it whatsoever. It's about as cynical a movie as you could possibly, find. But both the next two movies, both of which are Continental and the next one is a Luxembourg German co-production. They are like so wildly left field and off kilter in their (laughs) their sort of cynical sensibilities that they had to be put together even if it weren't for the fact that neither have English language clips that we can run. Um, So this one written and directed by francois ozon stars uh, denis Menachet as uh, as peter von kant and right, i was saying to you when we were sort of between recordings um, i'm convinced that it's been he's been named the character has been named specifically peter von kant k a n t specifically just to screw with us as an audience it is the story i would say it's it's the story of uh, denis Menochet as uh, the, the title character, who I'm just going to call Peter, or, or Peter V, from this point, who's he's a successful film director, um, who, who lives who lives and works at home, never seems to leave his home really, um, gay man who's sort of spiralling into his own neuroses and heavy alcoholism, relies all too heavy on, heavily on his put upon assistant Carl, who's presented as this sort of wonderful, this, in this wonderful Doug Jones like performance of just just the pencil thin mustache and. And wonderful sweater vests, as this this deadpan comedic work of art performance by I'm trying to remember his name, uh, by Stefan Crapon. That was his name. Stefan Crapon. Did you say Stéphane Crapon? Stefan oh. Crapon. Indeed. And uh, he meets uh, he meets a, a new young uh, wannabe actor uh amir ben salem I, I think his name is um who he sort of crashes as a star we jump forward in time we see the toll that Peter Vond or Peter V's uh, natural personality seems to have taken on this on, on this relationship, and exactly how he seems to be falling back into very familiar patterns of behaviour in, in, in terms of self-destructive relationships. Um, it is, like I say, it's so anti-romance. It's kind of unreal. Like it's it's really unforgiving in terms of just how badly it wants to portray its central character. I loved it's- it
1: it's listed everywhere as a, as a romantic drama so that's hilarious to hear you say that after watching it
0: i mean you it, it's it, it's romantic in the way that you see him start to fall for this young man and also it's kind of a tragedy in that you can sort of see how this is how this is going to unfold like how this is inevitably going to go and how that relationship is going to turn on him. And it and it's got that going for it so there is that kind of, kind of tragedy romantic sensibility to it but it is mostly the sort of biting black-hearted comedic psychodrama more than anything about this this one man's introspective and his introspection his own or lack of and his own self-destruction i had i had a really good time with it didn't expect to just put this on and it just blew me away to be fair I, I have been enjoying a Francois Ozon movie or two over the past couple of years. I'm going to have to pull up the list now and actually try and refresh my memory on what some of them were. But I, have, I did remember noting that some of his most recent... Summer of 85, everything went fine. That I really enjoyed. Oh, Le Bon Dubois, I remember enjoying that. And *June et Jolet. Like, he seems to be knocking out quite a few in the past sort of decade or so that I've actually been quite enjoying. So, yeah, another in for Frankie O. You know, uh, I absolutely would go and see this. I mean, I would happily watch this again. If you're if you're looking for something that's kind of an art house piece with almost John Waters like nastiness, check this one. Out. Absolutely, go and check out Peter von Kant. But be very careful how you pronounce it when you ask the box office. I'm assuming this is subtitled, right? Yes, absolutely French and subtitled.
1: Makes absolute sense. Um okay, so uh that is Peter V, that's all I'm saying. Um and that is uh, that is out um uh today, actually, um uh, December the thirtieth. Um all right, so let's move on. Corsage. Now this is listed as a as an historical drama uh, and it's actually had some really good reviews, so I'm really intrigued to know what you think.
0: Right, you remember we were talking about uh, when we were talking about Olivia Coleman. I said I was going to reference another one of her movies. Uh, yeah. The movie I was thinking of was I don't know if you've seen uh, The Favourites from I think it was 2018.
1: No, no, not seen that.
0: So this was a Yorgos Lanthimos period piece about the British Queen, played by uh, Olivia Coleman, um, and her both physical and mental deterioration as she finds herself at the center of a sort of lesbian love triangle between Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone. And it was uh, it was notable for how it was filmed just sort of very wonkily and stylistically. Uh, this is something kind of similar, and it's about, I think it's Empress Elizabeth of Austria, specifically in the late 19th century. As she uh, turned 40, she, she's played here for the screen by uh, Vicky Krips uh, from Phantom Thread. Notably, and uh, Bergman Island with Tim Roth a couple of months ago, which I think we reviewed elsewhere. Yeah, and um, she she is the Empress. As she uh, as she pushes forty, she starts to uh, what she starts to find herself feeling this sense of ennui. She's not as important to the kingdom anymore. She doesn't get to give input on any important decisions. Her husband doesn't. The, the emperor doesn't listen to her anymore or put any stock in her opinions. She's just there to basically be a sort of a, a, a literal physical figurehead and, you know, mum-to-the-future-heirs, effectively. And it's not doing it for her. So she starts to find her passions and reignite her lust for life through uh, horse riding all of which then goes pear-shaped when her favourite horse has to be put down, and she turns instead, naturally enough, to heroine, as one does. Um, at, that, at that point, I would let that bonkers revelation be when we cut to a clip, but of course, most of this is not English, so we can't really do that. And this is very much going to work for people who enjoyed uh, 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 The Favourite. In fact, Catherine called Birdie recently as well, like a really irreverent, anachronistic almost, period piece. This will go down gangbusters. Um, very witty, very glib, very dry, very nasty. I loved it. Vicky Cripes is absolutely perfect. I loved doing Phantom Thread uh, anyway, and seeing her here as... Someone a lot more kick-ass. Someone a lot more, you know, just, just just kick kick around, kick in the balls and take names. Like, I was all down for that. Uh, the nice little supporting turns in there for uh, uh, Colin Morgan, our very own Colin Morgan from Merlin, turns up uh, in there as well. This was uh, just a really... I thought this was a, a very zippy and very fun. It's uh, it's quite a long one at now, R53, but I didn't feel it because I was sort of swept away in just kind of how wacky it was. I wish it had the style of the favourites. I will say that, but I won't say that I, that I liked it any less. I thought it was about as good, to be honest.
1: What kind of what kind of person would enjoy this, then, if you were to... Because, I mean, previously you've kind of said, you know, the older generation would, would really mm. enjoy one of the earlier movies. I mean, what kind of person would be drawn into this that would happily sit in a cinema and watch it for nearly two hours?
0: I don't know. I think there's a fairly decent appeal for anyone who likes a sort of Jane Austen-type uh, drama but can take the subtitles. I think that, in that sort of instance, so it's got a fairly broad appeal in that regard. i say, I think the fact that it is more of a comedy than it's led on to be, uh, that that's going in its favour. It's a far funnier movie. I, would have, I think they should have marketed this more, I think, and actually sold it as a comedy. I think, I think this would have gone down as a lot bigger, a more anticipated film than I, I think it actually is. But uh, i say, this one, uh, absolutely worth seeing. This one's out in cinemas on Boxing Day so I will check that out that's uh, Monday that's going to be in cinemas well worth checking out
1: does anyone actually go to the cinema on Boxing Day like I, I wouldn't have thought that's a thing to do <laughs>
0: Yeah, going to the cinema on boxing Day is the thing now because yeah, of our movies don't forget our big one our next review in fact does, is actually released on Boxing Day boxing Day can be a big release day uh, for movies because you know what it's like you've got you' had Christmas the day before family's all been cooped up so maybe you've got relatives staying with you so the next day for instance when the shops reopen you all want to get out and it's <laughs> easy enough to just go to the pictures or all we'll, we'll just bung on down to, you know the local odeon or whatever for the uh, for the afternoon um, I, I myself like to go to the cinema usually on Boxing Day of the twenty seventh. Just have a nice little chill session and see whatever the biggie is that's out for the season. The only problem I've got is that this year that's Avatar: The Way of Water, and I really don't want to have to <laughs> sit through that again like, at all. I can't imagine ever sitting through either Avatar again unless I'm doing a full James Cameron retrospective again. But like previous uh, years I've, I've sat in a cinema like on Boxing Day or the 27th and watched like Rogue One and Thor Ragnarok and movies like that. You know, there's some, It's always a good time. To have, and there's always a nice, everyone's nicely chilled out I find as well.
1: If you want to know why I was just laughing then at Van when he mentioned the new Avatar movie, you're going to have to listen back to last week's (laughs) off screen and you will understand. Um, Okay, so that's Corsage. Like you said, it's out on Boxing Day in cinemas. So we're moving on next to something I'm really looking forward to hearing your review on. I Want to Dance with Somebody, of course. It's got Stanley uh, Tucci in, who I absolutely love. I'm really keen to find out how he was in it. Uh, So we will be discussing that in just a bit. Stay there. Hello and we are back. So uh, we're sticking with brand new movies because there is a big one to discuss right now with Van and that is I Want to Dance with Somebody uh, which is of course, uh, it's a biopic of Whitney Houston, right?
0: indeed I know you were excited about Stanley Tucci uh, turning up in this I, I as was I. I, I I'm all about the Tucci he's uh, amazing he's her manager he's her manager he's Clive Davis in this and I was I was more than anything shocked that there was a musical biopic actually being made in which it wasn't about the manager screwing the famous musician over for a change you know what I mean about the about the the, the talent rep because nearly always you know, like it's always like Paul Giamatti got to do it twice in a year I think in 2015 I think he did it to to, to um, uh, NWA and um, uh, uh, the Beach Boys at the same time in the same right. year yeah. so that became a, a, one of those biopic tropes so this is the uh, the Whitney Houston biopic as you point out she is played uh, for the screen by Naomi Aki um, relatively unknown young actress whose main, main role to, to date, I think, has been in The Rise of Skywalker, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, in which she's the ex-Stormtrooper who teams up with Finn. And at the end of it all, they just casually reveal is Mamie Lando's daughter. Her. Oh, I know, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So she is Whitney Houston. Okay. She's very young, and she was very young then. So how I mean, she was very young, and do you know what? She is she is a bit physically younger uh, than than Whitney. You remember Whitney Houston was forty eight when she died. So Naomi Aki does have to convincingly play forty eight at a point in this movie, and. Wow. I would argue that's one of the film's big flaws is that Naomi Haki is too young and gorgeous to play uh, to convincingly play a 48 year old uh, recovering drug addict or, yeah. or not so recovering as the case may have been um, but say this is the the full chronicle then of the the life the rise for life and times of you know the voice Whitney Houston. So we first meet Whitney when she's uh, a, a literally literally a choir singer, sort of teenage choir singer. Uh, then becomes you know America's sweetheart after being discovered by Clive Davis. She then sort of ascends to overnight success. becomes I think she's the first female artist to uh, have seven consecutive number one singles. I think she overtakes the Beatles. She ties with Michael Jackson as well for another record. And then of course branches into films with the body guard and and the preacher's wife movies like that afterwards and and then of course her life became more or less all about her personal troubles which of course led to the unfortunate end and it is the full chronicle of that her relationship with Bobby Brown her relationship with both her father and mother and there are their separate ups and downs so the full works is brought to the screen it's written by Anthony McCartland who gave us uh, The Theory of Everything the um, uh, Stephen Hawking biopic a few years ago yeah. and it's directed by Cassie Lemons as well who directed uh, Eve's Bayou, who was also known as an actress and I didn't know he's married to Von D. Curtis Hall who is a man I just think is the coolest so have a listen Listen, this is the Whitney Houston biopic, uh, I want to dance with somebody, uh, this is Naomi Aki as, uh, as Whitney Houston, and Stanley Tucci on the set of The Bodyguard as music rep Clive Davis. So, I don't feel that they're allowing you to sing strongly enough in this picture so that we understand why your character is such a huge star. Okay. Do you mm-hmm. understand what I'm saying? I do. I do. The songs have to be great, mm-hmm. in order for the character to be great. So Kevin, your new best friend, found this. Here. Yeah. This is Dolly Parton. And I will
1: always love you. What?
0: I like
1: it. I mean, the soundtrack to this has got to be epic.
0: Well, I mean, its soundtrack really is a sort of greatest hits of Whitney Houston, obviously. And I believe that for the purposes of the musical performance, they have just had Naomi Aki lip sync uh, to Whitney Houston because I think it would be very, very hard to do an approximation this good of Whitney yeah, Houston's voice, agreed. to be honest. Uh, because it's a very distinct, very singular voice. Um, right. How do you feel about musical biopics in general, Adam? Because you you, you hero worship a lot more musicians, for instance, than I do. Obviously, I tend to hero worship more, more filmmaker times.
1: Um, I think they work, but they have to be posthumous, firstly. Um, hmm. So, for example, Rocketman didn't work for me, because obviously, no disrespect, Elton John's still alive. Um, apart from that, I think they're great. As long as they're made well, they're true to, to the real story. Um, I, I think... They're brilliant because actually you get to see how the person that you idolize or the person that you've listened to growing up, you've seen how their life and how their music career came
0: about. Well, this is, uh, this is an interesting... Uh, obviously, you, you've touched on some points that I think absolutely I'm, I'm completely with you on there. Um, and also, yes, Elton John has far too much involvement in Rocketman. However, I will say, he is far more willing to probe under his own skin than I would have expected. He's got a little bit more introspection in the tank than I would have given him credit for. He yeah, but then you don't know would... what
1: he missed, do you? You don't know what he didn't put in, which might have been yeah, put well, in if he true. wasn't alive.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it's very true. But um, using Man and uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which are around the same kind of time as a benchmark, you had one that had been very sanitized and you had one that was a bit more fanciful, but less sanitized. This is a movie that sits in the halfway of those to an extent. Um, it, as far as the actual story goes, we all kind of know the story of Whitney Houston, and there's not an awful lot to this that's really revelatory. If you've seen the odd documentary, and there were a lot of like hour-long documentaries on telly, you know, for like two years after you know Whitney passed. And here you get you get it all that like, narratized. Now, I will say the cast in this are all super, like all superb. You can hear from the clips, Tooch Tucci's giving it the old Tucci charm, you know, and he's, he's as lovable as he always is. In there, um, you've got. Got Tamara Tooney as uh, Cece Houston, her overbearing mum. Uh, Clark Peters as John, you wonderfully named John Houston, her uh, sleazy and sort of corrupt dad. Uh, and uh, and maximum props, of course, to Nefessa Williams who plays Robin Crawford. Now, her character is a very interesting one because the movie is, and this is where it get, falls onto the more to the Rocket Man daring side. It goes in impressively hard on. Whitney Houston's sexuality uh, in a way ah. that I wasn't quite prepared for because obviously I just assumed it was one of those things that they would effectively straightwash out of the narrative because this has been made in you know, accordance with you know Whitney Houston's estate of family. So you would assume that this has sort of been phased out of the way. Uh, not the case. Not the case. They are more the world's... They forget it about as quickly as they bring it up, to be fair. But for the half an hour that it's a part of this two and a half hour movie... They go in impressively hard on it. They also, I would argue, kind of go a bit gentle on Bobby Brown. I'm trying to remember who it is. that Ashton Sanders plays Bobby Brown here. And he's got that nonchalance and arrogance down perfectly, but I don't think they quite give him the runway uh, to really go with it. Um, on the side of it falling back against the more sanitized uh, Bohemian Rhapsody side of the musical biopic equation, though, I will say there are long stretches of time in which these still feel like I've not gotten this out of a thousand already I and mean, this is so this is kind of cosplay by the numbers, isn't it? Like we know you've got to do this bit, you've got to restage that video and then she went on and did that movie and then she went on and did this video and and so on and so forth. So you're effectively literally going through a bullet point cosplay scene recreation list Um, I I, I am sort of I do think they missed a trick not getting Chris Pine to turn up as Kevin Costner though (laughs) yeah just get Chris Pine because I mean the guy basically is Costner anyway they were in a movie together in a sort of mentor mentee role it would work all I'm saying is if you need the modern Costner he's as close as you're getting to the all-American Lantern Jordan hero God I miss Hunky Costner in the uh, late 80s early 90s Um, but of course big reason to see this Naomi Aki I think she's great uh, you say you knew her from, from Star Wars as well. Um, and yeah, She demonstrated yeah. a bit of sass in there. And those moments when you see uh, when Houston assert herself, there's the famous interview uh, when she was asked on radio uh, about whether she considers herself not black enough for black music or is she too white for black music? And she came back impressively hard on that question. And I remember uh, seeing a clip of the, or hearing a clip of the actual interview, and I it, it was a moment I've always liked about Whitney Houston, uh, very much because it was a side of her I hadn't seen before, and she was brash, and she was aggressive, but also very well thought out, in her response. And uh, Naomi Aki plays, for instance, that moment, uh, exactly as well as the onstage lip warbling. How far into her drug abuse did
1: they go? Because I know that there were big problems towards the end, obviously, of her life. And, uh, for example, I know that there was a a moment when she had to have false teeth because of her teeth rotting and falling out. And she lost like a $25,000 pair of false teeth when she was high
0: this uh let's say this is where you, you get that that's that side of the equation that it's falling on because there are moments in which it will go back towards the rocket man warts and all like we're being gritty about this and you think to give you an example in as regards how she would deceive and sort of go on her own little stealth missions to you know effectively pick up her fix um Like, that's when it falls on the Rocket Man side. But no, as far as elements like you described, that's where it goes back to the Behemoth Rhapsody side. This does go, I will say, this is the complete story. This is the story of Whitney from Discovery to end. So they are going all the way on this. And to be fair... I, I, I don't think it would work quite as well with the, the, the sort of the, the romping energy of it if they did go as good fellas or indeed as train spotting as they perhaps would need to. There is also a strange bit, a strange and increasing, incredibly tragic bit of the, uh, the story locked off the end that I can't quite figure out either. But either way, I think it will work for a lot of people. And I think the fact that it's coming out on Boxing Day, best thing for it, I think this will do really well. And I think you can, it's a 12, I think it's a 12A, it's, 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 yeah, it's a 12A. So I think if you've got older kids, uh, you know, particularly if you've got like kids who enjoy the the you know the retro pop element of Whitney Houston, go and see this. Like this is kind of one the whole family can see, and it is sort of like a slightly family-friendly. What's love got to do with it? If you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll take back what I said about Boxing Day because this is Outbox Day, and this is. I'd say this is the perfect kind of thing to go and see on Boxing Day, actually. A bit of music, a real-life story. And, um, you know, for some people, they're idle, watching from from start to finish, you know, her life. So um, I want to dance with somebody out on Boxing Day. We are going to continue with some more new movies in just a bit. We're going to be talking about Till, which is out on the 6th of January. So we'll hear Van's review of that in just a bit. Stay where you are. Hello and welcome back then. Uh, We're back for just one last ride. We're going to stick with uh, brand new movies still and Till. Now, (laughs) I have no idea what this is about.
0: Well, you're going to feel very silly about that in a moment, I will say as well. I mean, remember when we used to get to do and things because there weren't like enough films out in a week. And now we're all new releases all the time. We'll see how quickly that carries on in the new year, shall we? But yes, uh, this is the story of Emmett Till, by the way. Uh, the, young African, the young African-American boy who was killed uh, was lynched in uh, yes. five. And, uh, and weirdly, and I didn't, I, this is somehow, uh, this is one of those like sort of strange things that you sort of forget on the way into the movie. It wasn't until this year, until March this year, that lynching became a hate crime in the U.S. as certified by Joe, by President Joe Biden, and we are told that at the end of this movie. So this is not so much the story of Emmett Till's murder, however, so much as the story of his mother and how she had to rise of the rise to the cause. Of basically bringing her son's death to the attention of the American people, specifically the, uh, the the miscarriage of justice that befell his trial when his murderers were acquitted, and even, and even went on to get to sell their story. She's played here for, uh, for the screen by uh, Dan- Danielle Deadweiler. It is directed by Chinonye Chukwu, uh, who's going to play the High, high Evolutionary in uh, Guardians 3, uh, played the team leader in Peacemaker as well, I believe is actually a friend of Beck's, and I've got a for you. This is this is absolutely brilliant, this movie I'll tell you in advance. Bo? When you get down oh, there. Not again, mama. I've already been in Mississippi. Only one time before, and you started a fight with another little boy. He was picking on me. You're in the right to stand up for yourself, but that's not what I'm talking about. Oh. They have a different set of rules for Negroes down there. Are you listening? Yes. You have to be extra careful with white people. You can't risk looking at them the wrong way. I know. Oh, Be small down there.
1: Like this? Do you know, I sometimes find movies like this hard to watch because it pains me just to learn how big backwards the world used to
0: be well it used to be still is well, Oh, still is brilliant. yeah no yeah, yeah you're right but yeah I, I absolutely get where you're coming from and uh, yeah this is one of those movies and uh, you do I mean obviously the timing was kind of fortuitous because obviously this will have been in production uh, before the Emmett Till uh, act was passed back in March um, it's a fascinating story there were there was a lot to because obviously I knew of the murder of Emmett Till I, I, I knew that story, but I did not know this side of it. I did not know that there was this legal side of it, and that and that there had been this this massive miscarriage of justice. Um, it's a fascinating story. He, uh, Emmett Till, incidentally, is played by uh, Jalen Hall here, and it's a great performance. It is it is a great performance, and it's exactly the right level of he's sort he's kind of a bit cheeky but not necessarily and you can sort of get how this would get sort of weaponized and used against him in in the town of money Uh, it was all daniel deadwiler's uh show though i didn't i didn't occur to me that the movie was basically going to be from her perspective that it was going to be specifically her story and her story of how she goes from being quite nonchalant about, you know, the problems in, you know, more Jim Crow era South, you know, from her location in Chicago, she gets to live a life of, of relative, you know, ignorant ignorant bliss, basically blissful ignorance. And how she comes around on that and her journey to basically becoming, you know, an out-and-out figurehead and activist. And it's a fascinating story. I can see absolutely, uh, you know, why it was so essential to bring to the screen. There's a, a moment in there where Whoopi Goldberg uh, turns up as well as the grandmother. Oh, brilliant. And- Exactly, you got. It. I mean, it's one of those one of those times you're like, oh, whoopee, you know. Just the smallest appearance from you is enough, isn't it? And it does give you that sort of stamp of that stamp of authenticity of ah, we're in a proper movie now. And it's the only thing I'd say about it is it does feel, in terms of in terms of a movie outside of its subject matter. Obviously, I have to stress that it does feel like we are watching quite a requisite film. Once you get past what the movie is about, it then starts to feel like, OK, I've, I've seen this element uh, covered slightly better and handled better than this movie and, and this movie, and that movie, and that, movie and that movie there. And you get to those parts where it does become a piecemeal of a piecemeal tapestry. Of other sort of a, adjacent or relevant movies, just tie into uh, other stories as well. I mean, there's, if, you, if you're familiar with the idea of thematic uh, cinematic universes, the idea that, for instance, you can chart the whole history of NASA in a sort of cinematic universe of random, unconnected movies like Apollo 13 and First Man and you know the right stuff, and like you can watch these movies and basically formulate the entire pattern of NASA. You could basically put this alongside movies like Selma. For instance, and start to piece a lot of that, a lot time period together. It's one of the great things about historical movies and, and you know, true story, by, true story biopics. Um, fascinatingly done if a bit rote, to be honest and that most of the fascination comes from the story but also that absolutely banging central performance from danielle deadweiler like i mean expect her to come up for like you know emmys and things like that uh, golden globe nominations were this past week i confess i don't know if she got nominated i hope she did because i could absolutely see her getting there it's one of those things where her performance though is more award worthy than perhaps the film
1: Yeah. I mean, it's sold to me. I mean, I definitely I feel I almost feel like I owe it to everybody to watch this, to learn more about what, why, where, how, when. Um, Mm. So and, and I'm guessing there's there's some quite emotive moments in here as
0: well. Oh, God, yes. It's just the, I mean, there's just a sequence in which uh, Deadwiler gets put in a, in the witness box uh, in the courtroom that is just... I mean, it's like, I, you know, I'd like to thank the Academy, you know, golf clap, you know, kind of a moment. Because wow. like you, you know, I was absolutely broken, just absolutely destroyed. I mean, it's worth noting, when I say the movie is from her perspective, I mean, to the extent that Emmett Till's murder is more or less an off-screen event, like it seems to take place almost entirely off-camera. Right. Uh, we, we, we literally only hear it... And, you know, there are are certain sequences and the more sensational elements of the story, which aren't shown that I do. I I do. I wonder, because I do think that could have been quite a profound, although I can understand for reasons of keeping the movie's rating slightly lower, maybe uh, maybe kind of a necessity. Um, It is a 12A, incidentally. And it's one of those that, you know, you could sort of see. Yeah, you should absolutely show this in like, you know, in sociology class, like show it in history class at schools kind of thing. I could see this getting watched in a lot of GCSE classes, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that is out on uh, Friday, January the 6th, and it is called Till. So let's talk about uh, what we're going to be talking about next time. um, The Enforcer.
0: Yeah, so this, is, this, is, this looks a bit director to, direct to video to be honest. Like, I can't figure that one out. I mean, this, the poster looks quite director video But it stars Antonio Banderas. So you assume, eh, probably not. Probably just a slightly a, a cut above. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've got that to look forward to. Um, one that is out, it's out the same day as Till, but for reasons of, you know, train strikes and the only pressures, we're not going to get to cover until we're back. And that's Tom Hanks' new movie, A Man Called Otto, in which he's the grumpiest man in the neighbourhood
1: it looks so good I, I mean i also saw an interview that he did i think it was jonathan ross um because the the whole story is is a story that came is it sweden
0: i think so yeah
1: and they just changed the name basically but it's a, it's the same story but in a different told in a different way um that looks absolutely brilliant and i cannot wait to see that um
0: also the old way we're going to be talking about next yeah would you believe this is going to mark the after 43 years genuinely for the man has been out wow. for 43 years this is going to mark Nicolas cage's first ever western may it not be i mean it's not going to be the last he's done a second one i think as well wow uh, on the back to back with this so he has got a second western to come uh yeah nicholas cage is doing a western what more do you need that's worth coming back after new year's for definitely
1: And and just a bit of a name drop here, Nicolas Cage has got a house just down the road from me. Um will sort of move on from that. Uh, and there's Tar. What is that? I've not even seen a trailer for that.
0: This is, this is an awards contender uh, starring Kate Blanchett as a dancer. Um, I've, I've got this to watch on screener over Christmas, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to that one. But the one I'm really, really looking forward to, because you know me, you know I love a bit of schlock. I love a bit of formula. I love a bit of horror and inventive sci-fi. And yeah. we're going to get that when we get back, because Megan is out. It's Megan where the E is a three. And and basically, she's a little robot doll, a robot girl doll, who's also like a sort of support doll for anxious kids or like lonely kids. And so this little girl's robotic scientist engineer auntie, played by Alison Williams from Girls, gives her like a prototype one of these dolls, only for, wouldn't you believe, it to go mad and start killing people. I can't <laughs> wait. It looks like trash i absolutely can't wait for this yeah that's
1: i would like to see that as well that sounds brilliant well all of those to talk about then when we are back which will be on january the 13th on off screen so until next
0: year i've been adam ball i've been van connor and don't forget glass onion is on netflix from today get that watched and we shall return